Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Right now, you can get a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial on the podcast, go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell it out in the traditional way. Audibletrial.com slash other people. There are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in every genre imaginable. Go download an audiobook. Audibletrial.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is now in its fourth year of existence. This could one day be implanted in a person's brain. How's it going? Uh, I really do believe that, too. I'm talking about the singularity. When, uh, like, you have a microchip in your head when that happens at some point in the not-too-distant future. You could have a podcast implanted in your body. I could be inside of you. Uh, as disconcerting as that thought might be. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's freezing cold, relatively speaking, in Los Angeles. It's fucking cold here. I'm in the garage. There's no insulation. Uh, I am suffering, and I want you to know that. My guest is Mark Gluth. He has a novel out from Sator Press. It's called No Other. Uh, it is uh, making waves. It is it is rippling throughout the independent literature community, generating buzz, etc. No Other by Mark Gluth. I'll be talking to Mark in just a minute. Uh, I hope you had a good holiday. I had a good holiday. As you can hear, uh, I have a little bit of that cold that's going around. I feel like everybody has it. It's nothing It's nothing too serious, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm on some cold meds. So uh, I got a letter from a listener named Ben. He uh, heard the last episode, my conversation with uh, Luke Goebel. And in that monologue, I was talking about how I told my four-year-old daughter that Santa Claus does not exist. And he responded, hi, Brad. He writes, thanks for the podcast. It's one of the highlights of my writing life. I usually tweet my thoughts your way, but I wanted to suggest a truth-telling technique that worked well with my six-year-old daughter. When she asked me this year if Santa Claus was real, I simply turned the question around and asked her what she thought. She answered that she wasn't sure, but she wanted to believe in him. 
I said I thought that was fine, and I let it drop. She seemed content and has not asked again. Like you, I struggle with finding the fine line between being honest with my child and allowing her to enjoy childhood. It's not easy. Most of the time, I'm pretty straightforward, sometimes to a fault. Uh, If I try this same technique again in the future, it might blow up in my face, but since it worked well once, I thought I'd pass it along from one father to another. All the best. Hope you're settling in after the move. The ambient garage noises have not been a problem on my end. Signed, Ben. So, thanks, Ben. That makes sense. You know, and the the, the thing is, the problem with these uh, kid questions where I struggle is that, you know, you get put on the spot. I wasn't prepared. You rarely are. You know, there's no heads up on these things. Like one minute you're grocery shopping and the next minute your kid is like, uh, what is death? Is Santa Claus real? So, you know, like the that's like the, the Jedi mind trick. You know, you just uh, answer a question with a question. Uh, it reminds me, I think it's the 40-year-old virgin. That's Steve Carell, uh, the scene where Steve Carell is trying to seduce. They're trying to teach him how to seduce women and talk to women in public. Isn't that what they do? They answer a question with a question? I seem to recall that. So uh, maybe I'll try that. And what's interesting, you know, my daughter, I told her that Santa Claus didn't exist. And then we went through Christmas and uh, she believed in him anyway. It's like she's in denial. (laughs) You know, kids want to believe. So maybe I should just, uh, maybe that's the wisdom. Kids want to believe. Help them to avoid the truth. Gently. I probably should have just known that from the start. But, you know, the good news is I didn't screw it up entirely. She had a good Christmas. This was probably her best Christmas so far. She was very engaged. She was very excited. She was very aware of what was going on. And uh, it's hard to be cynical. It's very hard to be cynical uh, about the, the holidays when you're around a kid like that. They really, uh, you know, they really make it fun. So we had a good time. We slept. We ate. We sat around. We went to the beach. It was good. I cannot complain. We did not travel, and uh, we did not visit with family. Did I already say that? <laughs> uh, not that family is not, not wonderful. I love my family. I'm just saying, the holidays are difficult anyway. Why not make them logistically simple, if you can? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey! 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest once again is Mark Gluth. His novel's called No Other. It's available from Sator Press. Uh, this here, last episode of 2014, people. Happy New Year to all of you. This is Mark Gluth. His novel, one more time, is called No Other. <laughs> I am in Bellingham, Washington, which is up near the Canadian border. On the uh, so you can like flee. You can flee if you need to at any moment. I can flee. I can totally flee. Um, it, it's t- it's easy getting into Canada. It's really tough getting back into Canada or back into the U.S. I should say. Is it really? Um, it is. It is post nine eleven. It used to be really easy when when I moved here. We could um, we used to go up to Vancouver all the time just for fun, basically. And it became such a hassle coming back over the border, like three-hour wait times, dogs under your car, them going under your car looking for drugs or whatever. It's just it's a pain in the butt. But so, anyways, yeah. And I'm in a uh, I'm in a meeting room with a wall of windows, looking out at a foggy sky that's kind of overtaking a bunch of trees in the distance, essentially. So, wait, are you at your day job? I am actually, no, I'm next door to my day job. I am at a grocery store that I go to pretty much every day that is letting me borrow a meeting room that has a landline in it. Right. I, well, I appreciate you hunting one down. So yeah. uh, are you from this part of the country? Are you from Washington? I am not. I am from Cleveland, Ohio, right. so Midwestern. And let's see, I moved here in 99. Basically, my wife and I got married, and her parents already lived out here, and so we moved out here. And, yeah, I've lived here ever since. I, it's weird because I actually consider myself a Washingtonian now. Okay. Well, no, but it seems like a good place. I've always said this. The Pacific Northwest seems just very like a very pleasant place to write, and then the weather sort of socks you in. It gives you no choice but to read and write. Uh, I'm probably uh, idealizing it, but, is, I mean, do you find no, that? You, you know, you're right. At first I thought you said it, it kind of sucks, which <laughs> the weather does kind of suck sometimes too, but you know, it, it does suck you in. Um it's, I guess, you know, I'm not, I don't like warm weather. I don't like the sun a whole lot. I don't react to heat really well. So, like, being in Florida is like a worst-case scenario for me, for example. Um, and I'm kind of in the opposite of Florida, basically, up here. It's um, it's rainy and cold most of the year, to be honest. Um, Plus, Florida's just weird. <laughs> Florida is very weird. Not that, not that the rest of the country, and, yeah, not yeah. that not that the rest of the country and the rest of the world isn't weird too. But I mean, Florida is just notorious for uh, like just insane behavior and news stories, which I guess has its own kind of appeal if you're a writer. But um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe um, I don't think my writer mind could get a handle on being in Florida just yet. So what do you what do you do? For, do you have a do you have a day job? I do. I do. I work in a call center for like, uh, for T-Mobile. The cell phone carrier and um yeah i've worked there 15 years and it's kind of it's kind of job where i can kind of zone out on my job and not feel exhausted when i get off of work and then have time to write to to be mentally clear and write in the evenings and such okay so how do you and how do you do the work you do the work at night oh i try to write whenever i possibly can to be honest um 
So let's see. I take a lot of time, like vacation time I accrue. I take weeks off whenever possible and just set aside time to write full stop for a week, you know, not looking at the days of the week, not looking at the clock, that kind of thing, as much as possible. I mean, I'm a responsible adult, so as much as possible. But um, And then during the week I'll write at night, um, try to write on Saturdays on the weekend kind of thing. I, I find I do best when I'm just consistently obsessed with what I'm doing. And if I can kind of maintain that level of, of obsession, I feel the writing goes well. If I start doing other stuff or go on vacation and go somewhere and that anything that disrupts me being obsessed with whatever I'm writing, kind of there's a lot of ground to make up after that basically to get yeah, back to where I was. Yeah, I was going to say, can you get back in? Because I, I, I hear you on that. Like I think it's really good to get into a rhythm. Like I like If I'm working on a project, I like working on it every day. Yeah. And if you take a day off, you feel weird and you're like, oh, where did it go? And you feel like you might lose the thread and then... Um, yeah. How do you get back into a work? I guess you can just you just have to pick up and start trying start trying you know, to get obsessed again. Yeah, I, I honestly, I I wish I had a, a really a really crafty answer for that besides just um, just doing it essentially and realizing it might suck at first and realizing that you're spending a lot of time sitting there looking at your notebook or your computer at first and not much is happening. But I guess having faith in the process to a certain extent. Um, I'm not one of those. I love being inspired. Don't get me wrong. I love like having this this epiphany and just wanting to sit down and you know work it out on the page or whatever. But I also feel I feel for me to be a successful writer, I have to just kind of put in the hours, essentially. Yeah. Well, that's a good approach. I mean, you know, it takes work and discipline, and um, you know, I think the hard part if you're if you're a rhythmic writer, which I think most people are, you know, if you want to have some sort of regular writing schedule, uh, it's hard. Yeah. You know, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to have that time. Like I envy people who have like nothing but time to sit and write. But then again, I guess that I hear people bitch about that too. That's its own kind of poison where you have too much time. I know. I've I've often thought about that. Like I've often thought, man, if I didn't have a day job. But then I kind of think maybe having something that does take me away from writing, um, kind of it's like a reset button maybe or something, just to mentally orientate myself to something else essentially. Get outside of your own head. Exactly, exactly. So, and pluses and minuses, but I think we'd all probably rather be independently wealthy and writing full time. Right, but. right. It's easy. <laughs> I, I love, I love when I get into conversations like this with friends of mine, where you like you don't even realize you're doing it until you're like you know miles down the river, but you're, you're sort of justifying. Uh, your own existence in a way. You're like, yeah, it's it, it would be it's way better this way. It's not that it, it would suck to have just endless money and too much time and you know it's You'd just spoil me. Yeah, no, no, I hear I hear you totally. And then suddenly you like realize what you're saying. And you're like, oh god, things are getting sad. Yeah. <laughs> um. So okay. So what does success look like for you? Like if you you know you you know you you know how you want to work and you know that you have to put the hours in and you have kind of a workman like approach. Yeah. But like, are you you know, is that coupled with kind of a goal oriented approach where you you have a real idea of where you're headed and what things will look like when you get there? Yes and no. Yeah. So I, I think I have I keep my eye on an end result, um, which is often kind of abstract and maybe even hard for me to put into language at least early on in the process. And so I keep my eye on that and. I work towards that, but I'm also open to stuff happening along the way that completely kicks me off track and is completely tangential. Um, 
So ultimately, I think success looks like when I've hit some sort of approximation of what that end result in my mind was. Um, I know that I'm speaking really abstractly here, but just I always say I kind of know I've written essentially two books and a, a small collection of short stories, and each time I just kind of knew at the end, I was like, I know I'm done now. Like, I, there's nothing I need to, there's nothing I hate about this book anymore that I need to fix, essentially, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so, right. There's nothing in here <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, drives me crazy with loathing. Yeah. Nothing that I'd be ashamed of showing someone, essentially, like, oh, why'd you write that sentence? That was kind of lazy, or, you know, something like that. And there's a finality to that, because what I found is, like, I've had that moment, and then, like, time goes by, and it's like, oh, yeah, but maybe this. So then I second guess, I guess. But, like, you're able to finalize and just move well, on. Well, I, I do that so often. Like, I, I keep reaching these, like, oh, wow, I'm done with that chapter. And I kind of write in order, by the way, so I, I just kind of start at the beginning and write my books forward. And I'm always thinking about knowing the weird structural stuff that's going to happen and knowing in my head what's going going to happen and I plan it out and take notes and such. But as far as the actual writing, I just basically um, start at the beginning of each book. And so I'll be like, oh, I'm done with Chapter 3. That's great. And then a week later I'll go back and think, oh, my gosh, this is the worst piece of crap thing I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> right. just, what was I thinking? Was I drunk when I said that? So, um, But, yeah, so... It's, it's, I think there's this, this, this uh, gut finality I feel sometimes, and when I get the, just at my core, I know I'm done with this, and there's kind of a feeling of elation along with that. Um, that's, that's pretty much it. Okay, so. and do you pay attention to the market? Like, are you looking at what books are selling and what authors are making a living, doing well, and like trying to... No, sort of... I'd, I'd probably have a nervous breakdown if I paid attention to that too much. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I do. I mean, I'm aware of what's happening in the kind of um, indie press kind of world and that kind of stuff. But it's a full-time, I mean, and there's so many books coming out these days, and there's so many presses putting out great books, and it's really exciting for, uh, I'm 40 years old, and so just knowing where stuff was 20 years ago of not a huge market for a lot of these um, kind of off-kilter books or what have you. So all these books are coming out it'd be impossible to even stay up on top of the press releases for all of them, let alone, yeah. you Don't, know, like track of who's doing I, what. I, I get those press releases. They send them to me endlessly. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, okay, but you, so you feel optimistic that there's a big enough audience to support you or do you foresee yourself always having to have a day job going forward? You know, I foresee myself. So jumping back to you, you said you try to justify your existence to your friends kind of when you're talking to them and stuff. Um, sometimes, sometimes I'll say things like, I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to make money from my writing. <laughs> like right. that would somehow taint my writing in some way. And I think if I had to, and when I think money, I also think deadlines and it, it took me 10 years to write two novels essentially. So five years a book. Um, so I can't see many publishers buying off on me being given five years to do something. But, um, so, I actually forgot what the question was. Well, no, just do you ever see yourself not having a day job? Yeah. You know, do you, think no, that there's a, you know, do you think there's a readership out there big enough to sustain the kind of work I, that you do? I, I think I'd like to believe there is, but I don't know. Um, I, I feel that both my books have been successful in that people have purchased copies. You know, I meet people that have read them and stuff. And I guess to certain, some extent I have some sort of name recognition at some low level. But 
at this point in time with the economics of everything, I, I mean, how many writers can really make a living solely off their work? Right. No, it's like a, it's like a, it's a Haley's Comet type of situation. Yeah. You know, it's very, I don't even know if Haley's Comet is the right comparison, but you get what I'm saying. It's like, you, you yeah. can't, I don't think you can game it. I think it's just, uh, you make the best work you can. I think there's a yeah. lot of like excellent work that gets a fraction of the readership that it deserves. And then there's a lot of mediocre work that gets like, you know, a hundred times the readership that it deserves. And then every once in a while, there's really great work that gets the big readership. And I think that's, right. that's the eye of the needle. You know, <laughs> you're trying to make really great work that finds a large audience. Um, I mean, I think that's what writers hope for. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I hope ultimately for that I'm happy and I, I truly do mean happy just knowing I can get my work out there, that there's been publishers that have been interested in it enough to put it out, um, and that it exists in the world for people to read. Um, I guess ultimately, that's that's a that's a that's a that's a really good payoff. Yeah, and and uh, so how did you get into this racket? You grew up in Cleveland. Grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I guess I always loved books, to be completely honest, and I. Growing up, I you know we we're probably middle class to low middle class, um, blue collar. Growing up in the seventies and eighties, and there's a lot of times where my parents were out of work or my dad was on strike or something, and there wasn't a whole lot of money. What did he um, do? He was a sheet metal worker, actually. He was a he called himself a tinner, but he was a proud union sheet metal worker for fifty years or what have you. Um, and my mom was a teacher, so um, we need more unions. We, I feel like I feel I feel like authors should unionize. I mean, it just people bitch about unions, but it's like if you don't have unions, and unions can be corrupt, you know. Like uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately for some reason. Yeah. But if you if or, if labor doesn't organize and doesn't have any leverage against the uh, titans of industry or the powers that be, then they're just going to run roughshod. Like corruption right. is corruption is not limited to the the titans of the world, um, right. you know. But it's like okay, if they're going to be corrupt, then we need to have our own like corruption to fight back with right, and, and there's and there's nothing inherently corrupt about a union sure there's corrupt unions but right you right. know i think partly that's because power concentrated in those unions but i yeah i could go off on that yeah no me too me too i just because i feel like it's diminishing and i feel like that's part of what's uh fucking things up and why there's that huge wealth gap it's because you know people can't uh, no. there's no leverage people can't fight for like a living wage and like good benefits and pensions and shit like that yeah, as an example, growing up, my dad was a sheet metal worker, like I said. My mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was, I think, 10 or 11. And granted, we didn't have a whole lot of money, but you don't, with a blue-collar job, you don't hear a lot of right. single-income blue-collar families anymore. Yeah, There's no. always extra money coming in from the from the other partner. You, you don't so. hear a lot of single-income white-collar families anymore. Yeah, exa well, exactly. You know? Exactly. That's, that's rare error. So things have changed, and not for the better, you know? and. Uh, no, anyhow. and yeah, well, no, go, goes, go ahead. I was going to say stuff goes towards a kind of, as opposed to manufacturing or whatever, stuff is going towards a quote unquote um, information economy. And so information workers are often even salaried. So they don't even have hourly wages. They're, right. granted, it's a, it's a white collar job, but it's, you know, unlimited overtime, unpaid kind of thing. So it, I don't know. It's. It's easy to get depressed if you think about the direction those things are going. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta. I don't know what I gotta do. I feel like people. <laughs> we we gotta, gotta unionize. Is what we, we gotta do. Yeah, we gotta rise up. So, 
Uh, so you're growing up in Cleveland, uh, blue collar family, but like loving books. Like, uh, did your yeah. parents did your parents push you in that direction or feed you books, or was this something you came to on you know, your own? I think my I think my mom always fed me books. I don't ever remember not being able to read. My mom said so. My mom was a teacher, but she was a stay at home mom, so she quit teaching for about ten years. And I think she couldn't give up the teaching, so I was her little um, her little project to a certain extent. So I learned how to read pretty easily, pretty early. Um, I think my mom tried to teach me cursive when I was three or four, so I have horrible handwriting because of that, probably. <laughs> but um, growing up, I, you know, we didn't have money, like I said, but my parents always seemed to prioritize buying me books. So I couldn't necessarily get toys or anything, but I could always get books. Right. I think that's probably why I ended up just loving books and like going to the bookstore. I love, still to this day, just wandering around bookstores and looking at stuff. And so I always loved books. I always read a lot. Um, Especially like, like the choose your own adventure books. Oh yeah, um, the Dungeon and Dragons books, all those things. And something happened when I was 15 years old. And this is really strange. Like I went from reading, um, like just like mainstream fantasy novels, to reading American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> it's called and adolescence. I, <laughs> I I didn't even know how that happened. Like I was, I, I remember looking through a magazine. There was an article about American Psycho. I was like, I need to. Check that book out. See what that's all about. <laughs> no, but it, it kind of makes sense because I went through a big horror phase, which seems sort of strange to me now because I couldn't care yeah. less about horror movies at this age. But I mean, and it was a concentrated period of time. But um, I remember American Psycho being uh, an object of fascination for uh, friends and people I knew as teenagers. You know, because yeah, it was it was a cultural event. I think, yeah. And it was also like illicit, and and it was uh, gory, and you know all the rest, and it just. Uh, there's something about it that struck a chord, and maybe like I've heard that like horror appeals to adolescents because there's all like you know bodily fluids and um, people getting punished for uh, you know having sex and I don't know like yeah. it, it works on psychology in a way that like you know maybe that's too broad of a comparison, but you see what I'm saying and yeah no I, I totally get you I, I even think even at a, a, a baser level it's the the whole kind of everyone's inner Beavis and Butthead just you know like the grossness of it essentially whatever form that grossness takes it kind of scratches that itch or something yeah like just confronting fears like seeing the worst and also just because the book was sort of forbidden you know and it was like okay if it's forbidden yeah. if, it, if it's forbidden i want in i want to see this thing <laughs> yeah my wife and i were actually talking about that last night just, I mean, they, the book wasn't really banned but there was calls to ban it um there was boycotts. The first publisher dropped it. Right, right, right. That would not happen now. I, I, I think it's good that it wouldn't happen now, that people aren't talking about banning books or what have you. But it was a different age back then. That, and it was kind of the liberal politicians that were talking about banning it as well, which was interesting. But Yeah, I don't recall. I just I remember that the uh, publisher dropped it. and Yeah. yeah there's a he lot. got paid twice for it. Well, see. Speaking, speaking of unionizing, he got paid twice for it. There you go. I want to get, yeah, get paid twice. Um, so, okay, so you start reading American Psycho, and then what did that lead you to? Like, at that yeah, point, that was... led to, yeah, that led to a really, um, I guess, what I would call, like, the, the standard path of transgressive fiction at the time that kind of artistically-minded young men were into. So William Burroughs right away, uh, Philip K. Dick. Um, to be honest, I tried to read a lot of Burroughs' books, and... They're they're kind of 
not my thing, I guess. I, I'm the same way. Like, I, I, try I, to do is, I've tried it, and it's like, I what the fuck's going on here? Like, I yeah. want, I want to love it, but it's like, eh, you know, it's not a. It doesn't like I, I don't get. I'm not moved by it. Yeah, and I, I need to be moved by something. I all the the weird technique and all that. That's great if, if I'm moved by it, and I just I could never really get into it too much. So, um, but then like Philip K. Dick. Um, then, and then I, as I got through high school and into college, I, I was an English major in college. So, where'd you go off to? Oh, I actually just went to uh, Cleveland State University in downtown Cleveland. So, um, so not too far from home. You just was not too far, from, not too far from home, not too far from my comfort zone, to be honest. But I, I had a lot of friends and stuff in Cleveland, and I didn't want to going somewhere else and restarting. That just didn't seem very interesting to me. Um. I think I'm a pretty introverted person, and having to restart that process of getting new friends and new connections just seemed really daunting to me. And then the money seemed really daunting as well, so I just kind of kind of stayed in town. But, so, when you say you're an introvert, like uh, you, st- you like what does that mean? You know, like are you somebody who uh, doesn't socialize all that much? Like how 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 introverted? <laughs> you know, it, it's I, I think when I say introvert, I actually mean in kind of the I don't know if it's like the Jungian sense, but that there's extroverts who gain energy from being around other people right. and there's introverts who lose energy. And I feel exhausted usually after being around people. Um, and I need to get, like, I need to like, there's nights where I'll plan to friends and be like, no, I can't do it. Cause I just, I need to be at home right now. Basically. You're going you're to have to lie down after this conversation. This yeah. is just a I, I, I can survive on the phone. It'll work on the phone. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I, yeah, but so I, I guess that's what I mean by being introverted. Okay. So, and I, I think that aids me being a writer as well. But. Well, sure. It's common, I think, for writers. And so uh, you're at Cleveland State. You're an English major. At that point, a writer. Think, uh, aspiring writer. Yeah, okay. aspiring, I, aspiring writer, definitely. Um, I think I always just wanted, and I didn't even know really what that entailed. I just wanted to be someone who wrote books, if that makes sense. Um, I got. I went through, in college, I went through a very, very... Heavy. I don't know if I ever left it. Raymond Carver phase. Um, I can see that in your in the in uh, your prose, and like the sentence structure and like the rhythm of your sentences. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. I. I. He was like so. I read American Psycho, and that kind of unlocked something for me to a certain extent. And nothing really triggered that for me again until I. Um, I read. I think it was probably Carver's first book, and it just. Pretty much every sentence, I was like, "Wow, this is this is how it's done, basically." Yeah. Um, well, now and now you live up in his neck of the woods. Like you've you've made like a full yeah. pilgrimage. It's crazy. I because um, I have friends from where he spent a lot of time, and like, oh, is there anything about him there? Like, oh, yeah, we named our high school library after him. I'm like, that's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> to him, it's like calling it like the William Shakespeare Library or something. They don't care, but. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of cool to live someplace where I can kind of visualize. Not that I think his his work relies on visuals, but it's cool to kind of see where he was, and I've been in towns where he lived and stuff, and kind of see that. Yeah, it's a, he's like I I went through a big Carver phase, like, and then got really imitative trying to kind of write like him, and uh, you know, I think Hemingway does that. I think Hemingway did that for Carver, right? I mean, it feels like it feels like a, a lineage, a kind of. Yeah, I, I think I think Hemingway definitely did that for Carver, um, and I don't really know that much about Carver's life. I, I do know that he loved Hemingway, um, 
and then Gordon Lish edited him a lot, at least early on, I think. Right. I don't know how much of how much at least the first couple of books were Gordon Lish, but um, I, I just think there's something magical about his stories, and I love the fact. Honestly, this sounds really lame, but you're you're in high school and college, and you want to be a writer, and you see this guy wrote a two-page story, and that was okay. Like, not even have to write like this 35-page story in the New Yorker or something. It was like. <laughs> Right, it makes it like more doable. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, too. like I can I can write two pages. This yeah, is good. yeah, and but that's the thing about that kind of work is that it's uh, you know, its sophistication is is deceptive. You know, the the prose is very accessible and it tricks you into thinking, okay, this is something I can do, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it can be right. um, a little bit humbling when you go off and try to write your simple sentences and be all declarative, and then your story turns out to be a big pile of shit, but. Um, right. You know, at least it gets you going. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's good to get, it's good to have things that get you going, even if you fail at them initially. It's good to get going on something. It's good to see something like, hey, I can attain that. Um, well, plus, plus right. he, he was writing about like the blue collar experience and like everyday people, and that had to have yeah. spoken to you as well, right? I think I think it did. It it, it it wasn't foreign to me. Let me put it that way. Like reading reading a, a Brett Easton Ellis novel. For example, that, that might as well be reading some sci-fi, as far as culturally <laughs> speaking, right? Right. But like the the Raymond Carver stuff just made sense to me. Like that was life. Right. But um, but yeah, I was just thinking about this earlier too. Is another, and I got into her later. But Joan Didion was also heavily influenced by um, Hemingway. She taught herself to type by copying by typing out pages of Hemingway. But um, I think she 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 gets the same kind of thing just from a different perspective as well. Did she, but, did she influence you or, you know, I think so. I, I, when I read her books, I'm just kind of in awe of them. Um, but I haven't been as thorough of a fan of hers as I was with Carver. So I, I haven't digested everything she's written. I haven't, um, I think I, I'm delaying the experience of reading all of her novels essentially because, that you would be over at that point in time, but yeah, you want to save some, like just like savor it, like don't yeah, don't blow through it all at once. I... It's like leftovers or something. But, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's, just, it's it's interesting seeing how someone like Hemingway can influence those two, and then those two, how many how many thousands and thousands of writers they influenced. So yeah, they're great I ones. Know. I love Jones. I love them both. You know, so. Uh, when did you start? You know, you read Carver, you're reading Brett Easton Ellis, you're in college, you're an English major. Uh, is it yeah. is this when you're making your fledgling attempts? Like your yeah, I was you know I was taking writing workshops and stuff. Um, you know, writing short stories and workshopping them and kind of like a standard experience with that. And I don't think I was. I just didn't have the chops. Um, I I think I realized also way after the fact is I work really slowly and, like, go through many, 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 many drafts. Like, my first book, I think, I, I, I counted it once. Each chapter had about 40 to 50 drafts of just completely rewriting it from beginning to end. Do you work longhand, and or do you just type everything? I, yeah, I work longhand in notebooks. Um, yeah. So, 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 it's, so what, I, you're just, I, are, you, are you just crossing shit out? Like, you're just going in there, do you mean, is it pencil and eraser? Or, like, how do you, because, like, how does it look when you're doing yeah, 40 well, drafts? Um, uh, I so I, I'll write, let's say I'll write ten pages in a notebook. I'll type that up, print that out. Then I will work on the printed out piece, crossing out stuff, um, 
you know, writing in the margins, scrawling on the back, that kind of stuff, type that up into a new clean document, print that out, start the process over again. So um, I've actually just thought about how I could maybe make that more efficient, <laughs> but I haven't really come up with anything yet. But, well, well, but you know, like, I, it, it, I, I don't know, like, you think your, your work feels like it's really been gone over, which is a compliment, you know, and, like, I think oh. I think that... Um, I, I always appreciate that as a reader, you know, when there is like this really fine degree of compression and you can feel like that every word's been weighed. Um, you know, I, I guess you, you get that as well when you're reading more lyrical writing that's like, you know, uh, there's more words on the page or whatever, you know. And, right. Um, I can appreciate that as well. But it just feels like, to me anyway, you know, coming at it, it feels, it feels a little harder to get things super compressed, you know, and to give yourself that mission than it does to like let yourself be expansive. But I guess like on the, on the, uh, you know, in defensive, more expansive, more lyrical writing, like, you know, that can get unwieldy pretty quickly and you, you do have to be able yeah. to control it. Otherwise you're just going to have a mess. Yeah. They're different paradigms. I think they're both really difficult. I can't imagine being super lyrical or I can't imagine writing well, super lyrically, but, um, thank you for what you said and it's I do think it's I I think well done what I'll call simple writing is really really tough to pull off like that's why a lot of people can imitate Carver but they don't come nearly as close to kind of like the genius or whatever that he had so yeah, well, yeah I mean it's a, lot, it's a lot of work I think people are averse to that <laughs> Yeah, I think once people realize, oh shit, this is a ton of work, and maybe even more work, uh, then that's why you know people turn yeah. away. You have to have a certain masochism or a certain determination, you know, determination uh, to to do the work, just to sit through forty drafts. Like, where do you think that comes from for you? Like, where I does don't know. like are I, you I'm are you sorry, are you obsessive? I think I'm, I'm 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 obsessive about certain things, and I think luckily writing is one of those things. Um, I get I do get obsessed with stuff I guess so, and that's why it's great when I'm obsessed with an, an idea that I'm writing. Um, I just you know it's weird because I haven't done much writing in the last several months, essentially probably like three or four months, and I just started working on some stuff recently, and I kind of missed I realized I didn't realize until I started up again, but I, I missed the idea of having a pencil in my hand with a notebook and sitting in my chair in my office and just kind of doing it. Um, so to a certain extent, there's an obsession, but to a certain extent, it's the comfort of what I know at this point in time, if that makes sense. So Sure. And are you working from it? Like you say uh, you get obsessed with ideas, you know, because yeah. this, is, this is something that I think differs from writer to writer. Like certain writers might get obsessed with a character. They have some image of a character in their head or some you know, character that's based on a person or a combination yeah. of persons from their life. And then I think there are fiction writers who can have a, a big question or some sort of like philosophical argument that they're having with themselves that they're hashing out in their fiction. And that, you know, that's kind of the, yeah. uh, the leading edge of what's, you know, got them, uh, you know, transfixed. Like, what is it for you? For me, you know, I get obsessed with, I think, well, two things that go hand in hand. One is specific scenarios in my head. Like I'll suddenly see a character in a specific place in their life and start wondering what led to that and where are they going from there. Um, and then also 
specific moods that I kind of tie into that. So um, speaking about my last book, No Other, I was obsessed with for a long time. I knew there was this brother and this sister, and I knew they were kind of in a bad situation. And that sounds really like high level, but that's what I was obsessed with, was figuring out kind of who they were, why, why they were in the situation, what got them in the situation, how they were going to get out of the situation, and, and that, that was basically it. And you didn't know what the situation was? No, I didn't even know what the situation was. I just knew it was a, I knew they were in dire straits, for example. And this is not based on your life? Like you didn't have a sister? You weren't in a bad situation? No, no. No. Yeah. Th- there's a, the book's called Alcoholics. I don't know any alcoholics. I've, I barely drink. But um, you got to get out more, dude. Come on. I know. <laughs> you're, in, you're, in, you're in Bellingham, Washington. You're surrounded. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll take that advice, Brad. Yeah. But. <laughs> Go hang out with some uh, addicts in your life. So, oh, there, there's a lot of yeah. There, it's easy to find addicts in Washington, but what, like uh, lots of meth and shit like that. There's a lot of meth. There's a lot of meth here, and um, it, it, you just sometimes you just walking down the street and see empty packets of heroin on the ground and stuff. So, I know it's it's always. I mean, it's been here for I don't know how long, but it's, it's part of the culture of the Northwest. Is kind of like drunkies come up here and stuff. So. Sure. Sure. So, okay. So, uh, you, you know, back to your, your bio, like you're, you're getting yeah. out, of, you're getting out of Cleveland state. Like, how do you get from there to here? Like, like you're 40 now, you said, so it's been yeah. so, about 20 years. What did it, what happened? Like graduate college, um, got married that summer and got married young, got married young. Yeah. I was, so I was almost, I was 24, almost 25 when I got married. Oh, okay. I thought you were like I thought you graduated like twenty one, twenty two. But no, I guess... no. I, 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 I took some time off in college too. Um, I took off about a, I guess, kind of year overall. But I, I actually worked at the post office for a while um, to kind of save up money for college and stuff. So, so anyways, I got I was twenty four when I got married, um, and so then we moved to Washington, and I knew I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Obviously, that was probably one of my central goals. So, got a job and just tried to tried to write to a certain extent, and kind of lost sight of it. And not in a I don't mean that in a bad way, but I realized maybe maybe I was going through a period of time where I wasn't going to be writing very much, and that was okay. And so I just kind of always thought about what I'd be writing, and maybe thought about the future a lot for about four or five years, which sounds like a really long time when I talk about it, but it kind of flew by, and. Then I remember just one day, just kind of walking one of my dogs. And I just got an idea for what became my first novel, or it became one of the one of the many ideas that's in my first novel. What was the idea? Um, it was about essentially it was a I pictured a older woman on the beach, which there's tons of beaches up here, and. With with a dog essentially, and it was kind of there was a storm coming in, and it was kind of gray and rainy and stuff, and the image just came to me, and it was, it was one of those things like I said I got obsessed with it, and I thought well this be a short story or something, so I kind of worked on it for a long time. I showed it to some people, um, like friends of mine, like literally not writers, just like hey look at this thing I 
like, look at this story I wrote. Like, I didn't know you wrote. <laughs> right. <laughs> and stuff like that. And um, so I worked on it probably, I don't know, like six months or so. And I'm thinking, and I may be completely wrong on dates, but this was probably around 2005-ish, 2004, 2005. And... Um, Essentially, that's when I, I kind of call it phase two of the internet because I feel like we're in phase three or phase four right now. But I feel like phase two of the internet was happening then. That's when a lot of like blogs were starting up and community was forming around those blogs. Uh-huh. And I was I was I was a huge Dennis Cooper fan um, from back in college, and just he kind of fell into aesthetically what the way his writing works and the way his sentences work fall into exactly what I love. And so I basically ended up sending him some stuff through his blog or whatever at the time. And he was he was really encouraging about it. And he was like, oh, this, the story's really good. And I realized once I got... And I think people need encouragement. And so he gave me encouragement at that exact moment. And um, at that point in time, I was like, well, I could turn this into a... He's like, have you ever thought about writing a novel? writing a novel, what do you mean? And That kind of ran through my head. And I realized I could turn a lot of the ideas I was forming in my head into one whole thing as opposed to lots of little stories or something. And so that's how I ended up basically getting the idea to write my first novel. And then how long did it take you after that? Oh, four or five years. Wow. So, well, let's see. Let's say that was 2005... Um, I finished it in 2008, so I guess three years, but if you count the time I spent writing the story first, probably about four years. And why, years uh, why do you think this image of this old woman on the beach? Like, do you have any idea where that comes from? No, I I don't, and I this sounds lame, but I really try not to understand that stuff too much, like where my subconscious kind of pulls up stuff. Um, I was just walking through a normal suburban neighborhood, just, you know, houses every 30 feet, driveways, that kind of thing. Um and maybe because that was so bland and so known to me and not something that would jump out at me, that I was just daydreaming about different stuff. But um, a lot of my, a lot of, honestly, a lot of the images that I have as a writer that I work with kind of come randomly to me like that. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's kind of, maybe it's kind of wise. Like you can kind of spin your wheels trying to figure all that stuff out. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know, but yeah. So I, that's why I'm scared to understand it to a certain extent. Um, cause I, I, I remember, I don't know if he still does this. But I remember watching an interview with Joaquin Phoenix, the actor once. He's, he's unbelievable when you interview him. I don't know. I, I heard him on fresh air and he was just miserable. <laughs> <laughs> he was like on Oprah. It was bad. Like he was pretty shut down, but he hates to be interviewed, but he did say, I don't, maybe he was lying. I don't know, but he said that he's never seen one of his movies. Um, because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to know, correlate what he's doing as an actor to what it actually looks like to a viewer. Because he doesn't want to be in another movie someday and think, oh, I'll just do that face I did in such and such movie or something. I kind of get that though. That kind of makes sense to me. I wouldn't want to see a movie that I was in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, awful. I can't stand. Yeah, it's, it's awful for me. It'd be awful for all involved yes. if I was in the movie. But yeah. um, so, anyways, I think. I'm trying to correlate that to 
me trying not to understand my ideas to a certain extent. Like, they just have to feel right to me, if that makes sense. No, that does. I'm just curious. I'm always curious, like, you know, because it seems like you're working. I mean, I guess that's inside out, but, uh, you know, it's not you, you know, like you really were drawing on these, like something of your imagination and I guess of your subconscious, you know, Um, whereas I think some writers are working in a much more uh, explicitly personal vein. Yeah. um, I'm kind of jealous of people who can write autobiographically, to be honest. Why can't why can't you? I don't think my life's that interesting to me. <laughs> I don't know. It's, <laughs> I I think me it's being what I say about like being introverted or whatever. I I think it would be kind of gauche to talk about myself in that way. First off, and I'm not, those people are. Go- I'm just specifically to me. Like I would feel uncomfortable doing it. Um, and I guess there's little details in my books that I draw from my actual life, but they're really small things. Like you know, the story arcs or nothing like that would ever be for my life but um i don't know i just maybe i have a mental block that prohibits me from going that way for some reason yeah who knows i mean everyone's everyone's got a different way of doing it so uh you mentioned the internet uh yeah and uh, you know obviously when it comes to independent uh presses and you know indie lit the internet is uh, essential and is sort of the yeah. uh, you know, it's it's kind of uh, at the center of how this stuff works and how these relationships are formed and how publishing happens. So is it something that you were, it sounds like it was something that you were tuned into from a fairly uh, early point, you know, like you mentioned having the internet having different phases. I think that's correct. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, and, and so I get sort of nostalgic looking back on it because, you know, if you were around in the early aughts, you really did see literature move online that's the first time it really you know that was it that was the beginning and um you know things have been different ever since and continue to change yeah i I have a weird i've begun to get a weird nostalgia for even pre-aughts internet i was talking to kind of a younger friend of mine and i was like you know the internet didn't always have pictures on it right (laughs) like or or very rarely did it It didn't have photographs on it or very rarely did it have a photograph on it it was in just um, yeah, it, it, I remember the the early mid aughts kind of being always back when I I think like ninety six when I first got a computer and like went on America Online and stuff. It was ten years after that, or maybe eight years after that, that I felt the internet was actually what I was hoping hoping it was going to be. Back in ninety six or so, if that makes sense. What were you hoping was, for? You know, I was. To get online, I, I was I was hoping for, I guess, a liberal and open exchange of ideas, and that was definitely happening. But I guess it was lacking a sense of community, or um, if there was, it was. I think the internet was still a adjunct to real life to a certain extent, and somewhere in the mid to early aughts, that's when you didn't need to you you could start posting your writing online, and that was it wasn't in addition to publishing it somewhere, it was, that's how you chose to publish it at that point in time. Kind did, of thing. You, did you do that stuff? Were you blogging and, and uh, commenting on other people's blogs and like meeting like other writers? And, yeah, definitely a little bit, probably more commenting than actually blogging that much. I, I have a, this blog that I put together when my first book came out and I've never written anything for it. I just post various media, like movie clips or stuff like that. But um, definitely, I was definitely like checking out other people's writing, commenting on it, stuff like that. Were so, there like any any notables or any people who've gone on to have publishing success? 
um, Mark Doden, who um, he's he actually has a book coming out, or probably already out. Um, I'm trying to like what really like what websites were you were you going to like where where was your community? Honestly, it was a, it was like a bunch of random friends on Blogger, to be honest. And they're all probably honestly they're probably all tied to Dennis Cooper's blog at some point in time. So um, a guy named Nicholas Rhodes who published a book. Um, I'm really bad at recalling specifics sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but yeah. it's interesting because you know, like, it, it's so strange if you have if you have experience in like the online literary world and whatever corner of it you happen to be operating. It's it's a relatively small world, and I find yeah. myself when people mention names, um, the, the, those names often ring a bell because you see them somewhere, whether it's on a comment board or on somebody's blog, or yeah. you know, you read a story uh, by them somewhere. Uh, I'm I'm often struck, you know, doing this show and um, you know, just being a person on the internet by how relatively small the the world of you know literary fiction and literary nonfiction is. It's not ultimately that many people out of the yeah. out of the whole soup how many people would you say do you think i think people i mean I, I i game this in my head all the time but i think like when it comes to people in america just to keep it simple you know who are yeah. who are genuinely interested in literary fiction and literary nonfiction and read a ton and want to read uh you know about it and participate in it and write it yeah i, I would say Ten thousand or less, yeah. <laughs> like that might that might even be generous. It's like it could. Be, I was gonna say maybe five thousand. Yeah, but. it could be like it's a very small pool of people, really, or relatively small. So, um, you know, but maybe that's the way it should be. You know, like I remember reading an interview with Don DeLillo uh, years ago where he talked about writers existing on the periphery and how writers existing at the periphery of culture is as it should be, you know, and that yeah. it's not, you know, people always bitch about how writing should be closer to the center. I've said that. And, it, yeah. you know, you do sort of hunger sometimes for a, a more uh, nuanced discussion of life and events and whatnot, which I don't think is a bad impulse. But, you know, when you think about the writer and his function in society or her function in society, uh, maybe the periphery is where we belong. Maybe it is good to be out there you know, far afield, uh, looking in on what's happening and commenting on it rather than to be in the center of the thing? It could be. I, I think maybe as a writer, though, one thing I'm jealous of is when you're on the periphery like that, you don't necessarily, and I don't mean I personally don't get recognition, but I don't feel that writers get recognized and valued by society always. No, right, yeah. And I, and I think, too, I think too, like, I, always, I have an envy for writers who do go into the eye of the storm. Like, whether it's a journalist or it's some author who does an experiential thing where they're, you know, yeah. in, in the middle of some chaotic situation or, you know, in some, you know, faraway land at re- kind of reporting on what happens and getting their hands dirty. There's, al- there's always been a part of me that really envies and, and admires that. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought about doing that kind of stuff? Yeah, but it gets harder. You know, I have a family, and it's like, yeah. okay, so how am I going to justify? Because the other thing too is that, um, you know, you got to get financed to do that stuff yeah, somewhere. Exactly. And I feel like long form journalism, um, there's only so many seats at that table. Like how many how many publications are really paying writers to yeah. go do that kind of work? And uh, you know, you have to get a big book advance maybe if you're writing some sort yeah. of nonfiction book that can cover the costs of uh, you know writing the thing, but. 
then you balance that against you know wanting to be with your spouse or wanting to be with your kids, yeah. and you know it gets difficult. So it, it's a lifestyle, and I think yeah. like I, I think of a writer like um, William Volman, like he's managed yeah. he's managed to pull it off. That's sort of his bread and butter, um, and you know he's been through some shit. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, kind of legendary almost. He was know? exactly who I was thinking of when you were saying all that stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, he's kind of the prime yeah. example. He's the prime example of somebody who really gets out there. Uh, Sebastian Younger uh, is another yeah, one. Absolutely, you know, like that's a guy who's really put his life on the line to kind of go out and um, see, you know, first person what's happening, rather than like getting all of his information from the internet, which is how cowards yeah. like me do it. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm sure you're not a coward, but uh, yeah. I, I totally, I, I just, yeah, yeah, but um, so I, how do you feel? So we've been talking about the internet a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. How do you? How do you feel about the internet's effect on things right now? Uh, you know, I'm kind of less and less enamored with it. I feel like you have to be. I mean, I feel like personally, I would like to be more uh, disciplined about the time that I spend online and the kinds of information I take in. Um, yeah. Because I can get overloaded. I have overloaded myself before, and then I can also spin my wheels and find myself um, just wasting time and energy. Yeah. And I'm a big believer increasingly in like, you know, whatever media you're taking in, if it's junky, if it's like filled with anxiety and anger and fear and whatever, it's just like eating really shitty food. Yeah, you know? no, it affects you. It yeah, really does. It totally does. And like, I'm trying to, I, I think like the, the argument that I have with myself about that sort of stuff, um, whether it's media, meaning journalism, or if it's art. You know, if I'm watching a movie, like I went to see Foxcatcher, which I talked about on this show, and like, yeah, I left the theater and I was like, God, did I really need to do that to myself? Like, I know it's like a really beautiful character study and like wonderfully acted yeah. and directed, but it's like, I just feel like shit about people now and I feel dark. Yeah. And, and I'm like, I paid 15 bucks for it. Like, you know, there was a time in my life where maybe I thought like that sort of darkness was cooler than I do now, but nowadays yeah. I'm like, man, I just want to want to enjoy my life and feel yeah. feel as good as let's, I can about things. There's plenty of darkness closing in without having to go like, you know, pummel myself with uh dark. Yeah, art. life's short and you you got to enjoy at least part of it, right? If not all of it. Yeah, but I also don't want to be a pussy and I don't want to be like, you know, cuz there is value in making art uh, about darkness. I don't want like all like sing-songy sunny art and you know, that's not the answer either. Right. Um, but, you know, when it comes to the Internet, which is sort of uh, this massive, like, fire hose kind of feed of info and media, uh, you know, it, there's just so much. And it's in, it's infinite, you know, that you, you, you sort of have to be um, disciplined about usage. And the less I have my smartphone out, like, the better I feel is sort of the way it goes right. for me. I, I try to set up these, uh, these, like, schedules where I'll, like, I... I try to, and I'm usually pretty good about just not going online at all on the weekends, like not opening up a web browser. Like I might check my email just to see if something important happens I need to know about, but not getting involved and just clicking on links for an hour and a half or something like that. But it, it's kind of addictive, too, or, it's, or at least it's really alluring to, oh, just, I want to look up something really quick or... You know, who's in that movie, and you look it up, and then yeah. you click link about that actor. And, oh, wait, that actress was in that. And then, at least the way my brain works, it's 45 minutes later, and you're you're watching a clip of Jimmy Kimmel on YouTube or something. Right. Like, no, that, like, one of the worst feelings of the internet, like, one of the worst feelings that the internet can generate is, like, where you, you have a good reason to go online, 
and uh, or I, you know, I'll speak in the first person. I'll have a good reason to go online. Like I'll actually need some information that the internet is beautifully designed to provide quickly. And right. yet I'll sit down and will immediately get distracted and sucked in. And then like 35 minutes later, I'll be like, wait, where the fuck am I? And like, I never even yeah. got what I needed or yeah. even worse. I'll close my computer down. Forget the <laughs> Forget the original reason for yeah. why I sat down. And then like, I'll have to go right. back and it's just embarrassing, you know? That, that was me laughing because I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. I think everybody does. You know, it's like that's that's what the thing does to you, and you have to guard against it a little bit. Um, but, the, but on the flip side, I mean, this is a podcast. Um, I know I, I can speak the way my writing career has happened. It would not exist at all, or at least not in its current form, without the Internet. So right. I was challenging myself because I'm in a really, like, anti-Internet phase right now where I just think it offers little to no value to me. But then I think, well, I'm only thinking that because it's, it's part of my life in almost all ways. So it's, easily, it's easy to discount the positive impacts it has. So I don't know. It's, yeah, no, it's a wonderful tool. You know, it's just about how we use it, you know. And I think that uh, maybe the problem is that it, it's like insinuated itself into every facet of our lives. And it's so easily accessible. And, yeah. you know, co- companies and marketing firms, like, they know this. And so... Um, you know, I think they're trying to constantly pull your eyeballs towards it, and I, I don't know. I don't want to sound too yeah. conspiracy yeah. theory-ish, but you get what I'm saying. And I think that uh, it's just about making sure that you make efficient and wise use of it, rather than making it into a drug and trying to kind of numb yourself against um, suffering or pain or whatever. You know, because I think it, when you start using the internet as an anesthetic, is where it gets troublesome. Exactly. And, and the same could be said for any number of things that people use to, you know, anesthetize themselves against suffering. Exactly. So, yeah, and it's funny, too, because you speak about smartphones, which I think are, like, the most difficult uh, part because, you know, it's right there in the palm of your hand wherever you go. Yeah. But uh, your publisher, Ken Bauman, um, he and I were trading emails, like, uh, probably a year or two ago, maybe even longer. Yeah. And we were, going, we were kind of having a similar moment where we're like, you know, fuck this, man. I like my iPhone. I like the camera, but I don't want the Internet connectivity. I don't want the, you know, how do we do this? Yeah. And so. We wound up, uh, I think Ken wound up finding a, a way to, like, make your smartphone a dumb phone. Like, there is a way to disable yeah. email and all this shit on your iPhone and just make your phone basically a phone and a camera and maybe, like, you can text. Uh, and here's a sad confession. I never did it. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't follow through. <laughs> and then Ken wrote an app, so, right? Didn't he do Sweet Spot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like, it just, yeah. it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to quit. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, it's tough when you have this, I don't know, when you have the answer to all life's questions, not big questions, but anything you want to know is in the palm of your hand or in your pocket or in your purse or whatever, and it's addictive, but. Yeah. So, okay, so um, let, let's, let's yeah. put the internet aside. Let's go, let's go back to books for a second. Uh, you're publishing what, your second novel? Yeah. And you've done your, your short story collections. Uh, yeah. you're, you're 40 years old, so this is you know midlife. Uh, yeah. What is oh, the se- what is, what is the second half hold for you? Like, how many how many books um, do you see yourself publishing? Like, do you have some sort of idea? Like, uh, I don't know. I, I I think 10 sounds like a good number, um, based off of, and that's a maybe knowing the rate at which I write a very generous hope, but I think 10 num- 10 books is a good number. Um, 
Maybe seven is more realistic. But... <laughs> okay, five, fine, five. Yeah. Okay, I'll three, t- three, t- that's <laughs> it. <laughs> no, um, so, yeah, I I have plans for, so I wrote a collection of short stories um, that's going to be put out with this little French publisher um, called Kitty Punk. Um, it's run by this guy, Michael Salerno, who's a really good filmmaker and does all kinds of... Yeah, what is it, why does that name ring a bell? Michael, Solner- Michael Salerno? Yeah. Um, he's one of those names that you probably see out there. You're probably friends with him on Facebook probably or something. But yeah. um, he, let's see, he's done a lot of stuff. He's published, uh, Kitty Punk did, I think, Ken's first actual publication before his two novels came out. Um, he's done stuff with Peter Soto's, stuff with Dennis Cooper. Um, he's published quite a few. I Unfortunately, I don't know his all the books he's published, but he's published quite a few. Um, he made a movie last year, or released a movie last year called Silence um, that was really good. Maybe that's what anyway, I saw. So, Maybe I saw the trailer for that or something. You may have seen it. I think it got... It was out there on the internet quite a bit. Yeah. But, um, so anyway, so there's that. And then we are kind of talking about making a movie right now, he and I. So oh, shit. Filmmaker. Yeah, so he and I are... Um, collaborating on a script at this point in time, and he would shoot it. And he would shoot it. Yeah. What's it about? What's can you give me like a, any kind of info? Oh, I don't even. I'm not sure either of us know fully what it's about, but um, it's based off of some ideas that he brought to the table. I basically saw his mo- the full story. I saw his movie um, Silence, and it it pretty much blew me away. And I told him that if he ever wanted to write, if he ever wanted to shoot a movie of one of my books to have at it because I think he'd be great for it. And he said, well, I actually have this other idea. And um, he kind of gave, he gave me a rundown of all these little kind of fragments and pieces that are kind of kind of fit together. But it's kind of influenced, the, I'll say this, is the movie's kind of, and we're still early on in the script writing process, but it's kind of influenced by how horror movies function. But probably, it's, it's not a horror movie, but kind of if you think about it horror movies often have a like a magical realism in them at some point in time like like where jason where jason Voorhees is like walking casually through the forest and yet always catches up with the people who are sprinting (laughs) exactly stuff like that it's like it's it's like this archetype of what it is to feel fear at that moment or something but um or the fact that freddy krueger if you dream about him he actually becomes real those types of like those mechanisms that the stories turn on sure so it's going to, um, should it come to fruition, which I think it's going to, um, it's going to have a lot of weird little mechanisms built into it like that. It's ultimately about a, this sounds like a really lame summation, but it's about a boy that dies, essentially. So and he may have died in horrible circumstances. So it's a, a comedy, is what you're saying. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a crowd-pleasing comedy. This is how I'm going to retire. Is, yeah. Is, is this movie? You never know, dude. So I didn't realize. So you, are you a film buff, or you, do you watch a lot of films in addition to reading? I wish I was. I no, not really. I there's certain there's certain movies I like a lot, but I'm not super informed about the world of film at all. Um, does it ever? But it doesn't. Do does cinema ever uh, affect the way you work on your books? Or it does. It. Um, I'm so I said I'm not super informed about the world of film, but there's certain like I love Stanley Kubrick movies. To the general rule. Um, Why? 
You know, I and I'm, I'm as someone who writes forty five versions of a chapter to get to the end result. <laughs> right, right. He 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 was somebody who would shoot scenes for days on end. Like a little three minute scene would take ninety seven takes or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, and I'm not saying it. I'm not. I'm saying as a as a fan of his movies, I connect to that. I think, and I think it comes through in his work that his stuff is. It's like he's distilled every second of his film down to. He's like he's discovered its its essence at that moment, essentially. Yeah, that's a so, te- it's a tedious way to work. I mean, especially if you're the actors. But I guess. Oh like, yeah. But I think too. I think too. Like you know, he just he, he didn't know quite what he wanted going in, and you don't you don't know it till you see it, or you want yeah, or you want to give yourselves uh, you want to give yourself options in the editing suite, you know. Or you, or you know what you you know you keep seeing what you don't want. Maybe is what it is. Yeah. You know, but, or or you're just trying to cover your ass. I mean, that they call it yeah. coverage for a reason, right? <laughs> Uh, then we cut to this. Then we cut to that. But no, I, so I, I do like his movies. Um, I really like um, the American filmmaker Wood Stillman. He uh, he's made four movies now. He uh, he was. I guess he wrote one of the first big quote unquote like indie films. He made one of the first big indie films. It came out in 1999. It was called Metropolitan. It was about a a group of preppy guys going to a debutante ball, basically. Okay. Um, he writes about um, what most people would consider kind of upper middle class, lower upper class people. And um, they're kind of comedy of manners. They're kind of, they're funny. They're, they're really well written. They're, they're witty. Um, well, they better be. It's, yeah. yeah, with his name. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. So I guess I really like his movies. This is something just to enjoy, like seeing something well made, like like looking at the Eiffel Tower and going, "That's a really interesting structure." Like I look at his movies and go, well, "These are these are really well made. These are really well designed." So right, right. Well, but, cool. Well, and, did, have you, and you say you're early in the screenwriting process. So, uh, like, I mean, have you actually started writing script pages? Yeah, um, we've written stuff back and forth, and so there's definitely there's definitely pages of something that's been created. So um, it's funny. I, he's. I think we're both on board with it. Maybe writing it as a form of fiction first, um, or maybe a, a, a story that also describes how it would work as a movie throughout the script or throughout the text, I should say. And yeah, then but, maybe. Well, I was going to say, I feel like your compre- your tendency towards compression and the work that you've done to sort of build up those muscles would serve you well when you're writing a screenplay because that's all. Okay. It, it's a fixed. For, it's a fixed format. You gotta. You gotta compress. You know. It's like Twitter. Yeah. You can. You can't write a five hundred page script. You got to do it in one hundred and ten. So, exactly. So we'll. So this is. You know, he's been through this process before. I've never been through this process. So I'm learning. But um, I'm really excited. I think we're both really excited about it right now. We. I just got an email from him. So. Cool. Well, I. Uh, I wish you well on it. I congratulate you on your publishing success, and we'll look forward to uh, seeing whatever comes next. Uh, and I certainly thank you for the time. Cool. It was great to have you on the show. All right, folks. There we go. That's Mark Gluth. His novel's called No Other, and uh, it's available now from Sator Press. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle there is at Mark Gluth. And uh, for more info, check out satorpress.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the uh, music. Not this song, but uh, the other music. This is Guy Lombardo and his orchestra. Don't forget to go about the uh, Other People app. This show has its own app. Go get that. Available for your iPhone or your Android. Uh, it's free. 
It's the best way to listen, sign up for premium, stream the full archives. Get at everything via the app. I say this every year, but this is my favorite song. Or one of my favorite songs. In the sense that it elicits genuine emotion for me. Every time. Twenty fourteen, yeah, you know. I don't think a lot of us. I think a lot of us are, are happy to see it go, and I don't know if that's trite. Does it? I mean, don't we feel like that every year? Maybe not. People have good years. <laughs> I don't know anyone, but uh, from what I hear, people have good years. I kid, but you know, twenty fourteen, a lot of heavy stuff seemed to happen. It seemed to be a, a turbulent year in the uh, history of the planet. So I think what this song does is it, uh, and it's got everything. It's a little sad. Time is passing. We're all getting closer to dying, but uh, you're also hopeful about the future. You're drunk with your friends around a fire in Ireland. Is that where this is? Is this a Scottish? I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm a little sentimental, I guess. It's been a tough year, you know, for me anyway. In a lot of respects. It's been a good year too. But uh tough year. My wife and I lost three uh, babies this year. So that wasn't fun. And uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully better things in 2015 on that front. Hopefully uh, better things all around for everyone. So thanks for listening. This uh, This show started in 2011, so it really is year four. We're deep into it. And uh, let me uh, let me yeah, let me put uh, another version of Old Lang Syne on. I feel like this uh, closing monologue loses its sentimental value without this song. So yeah, 2014 uh, heading into 2015. Looking forward to more. I don't know what the future holds. Got no fucking idea. Let's ponder that. Let's ponder the unknowability of what's going to happen in the future. Things could be worse. <laughs> we could be headed for the abyss in 2015 and have no idea. Or it could be a golden year of enlightenment. Let's hope for the best. Let's be optimistic. You got to stay positive. You just do. What else are you going to do? Somehow. I mean, you know, force yourself. what I tell myself see isn't this song really good <laughs> I never get this sensitive on this show it's this fucking song I don't even know what the, what's the origin of this why is this song the New Year's Eve song it's a perfect New Year's Eve song Maybe the future will be better. That's what it seems to be saying. As uh, tourists shiver in Times Square. Making out. I have no desire to do that, ever. Stand in Times Square. I do like Kathy Griffin, though, and uh, Anderson Cooper. I enjoy that. They have a wacky chemistry. 
They do have wacky chemistry, don't they? Someone told me the other day that I laugh like Anderson Cooper. I feel like he has like an extremely gay laugh. <laughs> Nothing against gay laughter. After all, laughter is gay. I'm just saying. I don't agree with that assessment of my laugh. I feel like he's got a boyish giggle. Nothing wrong with a boyish giggle, though, is there? Is there, ladies? Who doesn't love a boyish giggle? This is it right here. This is the end. The end of 2014. Happy New Year, everybody. See you next year.